This is CliffCentral.com. If land was wrongfully seized from a person, justice would seem to demand appropriate compensation for this transgression. Evidently, this scenario is of great relevance to South Africa, given its long history of land dispossession. How has South Africa fared in its land reform efforts? What, if any, is the relationship between land and freedom? Is land seen as a proxy for economic status in current South African political debate? And if it is, is this a good proxy? On today's episode, Freedom versus Land Reform. This show is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and hosted by Gwen Nguenya and Mark Oppenheimer. So, Gwen, should we be concerned about land reform? It's such a wide-ranging topic, and I think one of the good places to start with land is to make sure that we understand what people are talking about. I'm not sure we're going to resolve it in, in this debate, but I do at least think that sometimes a variety of issues get conflated. So I think around sometimes when people talk about land, they really mean access to housing, and we've seen that in many um, issues, especially around you know what's considered wide areas in Cape Town that key areas of land and prime real estate should be designated to, you know, public housing and social housing as opposed to um, the private sector, etc. But there people mean, you know, access to housing. Do they mean land in terms of wealth? So they see land as a key way to, um, you know, of, in, increase people's um you know, wealth and obviously give them access to, 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 to capital. And then thirdly, perhaps, um, people see land in some kind of historical or sentimental. And I don't mean sentimental to place any judgment on that word, but that there's some kind of sentimental attachment to the land. And it's purely for that reason, never mind any commercial, um, or other reasons that they would like to get it back. So I think those three considerations need to be taken into account. Well, let's start with that last consideration, the idea that, um, if land was taken from you unjustly, um, it was stolen from you by someone, that you are entitled to have it back. So in South Africa, we've, we've sort of said, uh, if your land was taken from you after 1913, that there will be a process where you can uh, have the land um, returned to you, uh, mm. or you can have the financial value of the land. So what's interesting about this, to my mind, is that most people seem to take the view that very little has happened with regard to this kind of redress. But actually, if we look at – this is the – uh, South African survey produced by the Institute for Race Relations, uh, which is filled with incredible data. Um, and um, one of the things that comes out in this uh, is that 1.8 million individuals have received redress, either in the form of financial compensation or land being given back to them. And there are only 3,500 claims that are left. So um, the survey says that 97% of claims have already been resolved. So we know that in terms of what's happened, it's not a burning issue because it's almost entirely been resolved barring those that small number of claims. The other thing that seems to come out as well is that a lot of people um, opt for the money. So I think it's something like um, 8 billion rand that has been paid out in financial compensation and 17 billion rands worth of land that has been paid out. Um, which plays with the idea of how important it is for someone to have access to uh, a rural farm. You know, it, it may in some cases have a historical sentimental reason, and someone might say, look, you know, my ancestors were there, and, you know, it's important that I go back to that exact spot. But a lot of people say the economy's changed. I'd like the money. I want to start a small business in an urban area. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, I think the areas that you that you raise are, you know, around the empirical um, evidence of it. You know, does you know the government and I suppose other politicians who wish to use land as this wedge issue, do they claims hold up to scrutiny when we look at you know what people on the ground really say, um, you know, what they would really want? And obviously, we 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 see largely that not. But part of the the trouble here is that I think where we where we seeing this headed is that people are interpreting land as really a proxy perhaps for for wealth. So whilst there have been these, you know, land transfers, I think wealth still I mean sorry, land the land issue still captures the public imagination to the extent that it does. Because it's seen as a proxy for perhaps wealth, as I'm saying, and of course also the the glaring divide between those who live perhaps in rural and you know um, urban areas, but that are perhaps um, squatter areas, compared to the more prime real estate and suburbia that perhaps um, mostly is still um, you know the, the the residential areas of of white South Africans. So I think it's even though the the statistics of land ownership and the land the desire for land or land hunger are sometimes heard it being called, do not bear up to, to, to scrutiny. I think it's still useful as a wedge issue, or at least for the politicians who use it, and it captures the imaginations because it does resemble, or at least act as a good proxy for some real economic issues. So a couple of things here. I'm wondering whose imaginations are being captured because we see it in the press, we see it on Twitter. But mm-hmm. uh, if we look at the race relations surveys on when you ask average South Africans, what do you care about? So very large number of people say unemployment, burning issue. Um, access to basic resources, as you say, burning issue. Land comes out at something like 0.6% of respondents say it's a burning issue. So even as a wedge tool for politicians, we might think that's not really speaking to the electorate. It does speak to a couple of journalists who think it's a burning issue. Um, and maybe those with loud hailers are able to make it a burning issue. On, on I housing. also, I mean, I don't, so I don't want to comment on that point. I mean, of course, I'm quite familiar with that, with that statistic from our, from, from the surveys that the IR conducts. But I also don't think we must underestimate the ability for political parties or at least those who are vocal influencers to set the agenda. So whilst people on their own surveyed may not highlight it in the, in the top of their priorities when asked to do so freely, there's still room for people to, um, you know, take it as an issue that's going to be at the forefront front of the electoral uh, debate. Sure, look, there's something... And I suppose that's one thing we might want to say, is why is it at the forefront of the electoral debate when actually when people survey don't identify it as a key issue? But that's quite separate from whether politicians choose to pick it up or not. Yeah, they're clearly picking it up. I suppose there's the question, strategically, should they be? Mm-hmm. Look, it's an emotional issue. I mean, you know, the idea of, you know... Um, the earth that you know your ancestors held, you know, something that all nations seem to talk about. You know, it's a very. But that's why I think point. the appeal is much less. For me, I don't think it is that sentimental attachment because surely the numbers of people who opt for financial compensation, at least to my mind, don't bear that theory up. Okay, there have been some who've countered that point by saying that look, in some cases, people are obliged to take financial compensation. The land claims process is not as straightforward um, as perhaps we'd like it to be. There's a lot of complexity there, so in some scenarios, people may not be really in a position to it may just not it may just not be feasible for them to to take the option of land but i still think that for the most part people view land as you know a source of wealth which it very well can be but unfortunately the way in which land transfers happen in South Africa and sometimes are envisioned um to happen if this 
process were to be reopened, are not going to be able enable people to use land as this asset they think it might be, especially in cases where the state decides to take the land in, in a custodian uh, capacity where you know, it obviously then the, the state is not really, um, in, in a kind of freehold title basis belonging to, um, you know, the person who's, who's claimed it. And also in areas where, you know, the, the state might just be acting as a kind of landlord and people, you know, lease the land from the state. So mm. I think these are all very superficial understandings of what it means and what the full potential of using land as an asset are. And I think many people would be disappointed to find that in reality, they will not be able to use the land in the way they might um, envision it in order to generate that kind of wealth. But I think land is mostly linked not to his, the historical or the sentimental value, but to, to wealth as an opportunity for um, or as a trajectory to wealth and then also alternatively as a means to get housing. But then, of course, also land sometimes is just an empty plot. And that's, um, that's why I'm saying I think it needs to be clear what people exactly are talking about when they talk about land reform. And I think a lot of the time people just want us to address the socioeconomic need for housing mm. and whether or not it's a state obligation to provide people with access to shelter, well, you know, to, to shelter. And, well, I suppose whether that's a positive or a negative right. Yes. So on the housing issue as well, if we look at access to formal housing over time, um, you know, since 96, there's been a, a huge amount of growth in terms of people having access to formal housing mm-hmm. and the number of people that are living uh, in rural built dwellings uh, or in shacks has decreased over time. So there has been progress in that respect. Um, obviously, you have this crisis of um, rising expectations that as your peer group gets access to these things and you don't, you know, it feels even so much more frustrating that you haven't got access to this resource. Um, but I think you're right that Really, land is a proxy for something of value, but you've raised something something else, which is that there's this countervailing problem, that if the state is going to redistribute land, often the land that's going to be redistributed is land that's being used for, um, let's say, an agricultural purpose. For another economic, yes. Yeah, and the problem that you have is it might be being used very efficiently now. You've got a... uh, a piece of land that's that's producing crops and cattle, um, and now it gets um, redistributed to whoever its rightful owner was, um, or the descendants of that rightful owner, who don't have the skills to utilize that land and actually make a, a good living out of it. And it seems in those cases, it's disastrous on both ends to hand them the property, um, mm-hmm. because they don't have the skills to use it. You've deprived someone of a working farm, but that person is deserving of compensation. And so what you want is for them to be fairly compensated in the form of money so that they can then do something of their choosing with it. Um, But in some ways, perhaps maybe you're also putting the cart before the horse because we're now moving into an area where we're discussing the the effects of, you know, a land transfer process. But we might want to consider whether or not we should be – you know, approaching redress in this way at all. And by that, I mean, looking at questions of origin, you know, who can actually lay rightful claim to a piece of land? Um, how far back do we go? And then, of course, a separate issue of, you know, can that be proved? Yes. So uh, the way that we do it is we set up this uh, sort of legal process where you've got to be able to prove your claim. We have a, a cap from 1913. But there's, of course, an interesting moral question as to whether that cap mm-hmm. should be different, whether if someone could say, um, well, my ancestors roamed this territory 500 years ago, uh, let's say if you're, if you're Khoisan and you can say this was, you know, we were the first nation here, everyone else that came in as an invader, mm-hmm. we want our property back, you know. Uh, is there any reason why we might not want to um, redistribute land when it goes back that far? 
I think that's an interesting question. I mean, there is prescription in many areas of law, but it would just, I think, not need to be an arbitrary designation because we might think that if it can be proved and if it's not too far back, it might be a process worth pursuing. I mean, there I completely agree. I think it can get too far back where perhaps it becomes quite uncertain who the land rightfully um, belongs to. But one might argue that those same considerations don't apply for you know people who are removed under the Group Areas Act and later forced removals. So perhaps then that throws up another question of, well, maybe 1913 is too far back, but what about those that are much earlier? I mean, there are people alive today who could clearly point to the exact homes or the exact streets they used to live on and, you know, quite descriptively and with witnesses, etc., describe the ways in which they were dispossessed. So I think there's two issues here. The one is about um, the capacity to prove it. And so the nearer in time it is, it's often easier to prove because you've got witnesses that are still alive. You might have documentation that's still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one, I think, is this question of moral entitlement, um, which is not about capacity to prove. And so there's a, a view from the philosopher Jeremy Waldron, mm-hmm. which says if you go back further and further into time, um, it becomes harder and harder to tell what would have happened to that piece of property that was taken illegitimately. So if we imagine that... Um, if you go to England, for example, there's incredible amounts of records. Okay, You can trace your ancestors back a thousand years. You've got a property registry system. So you could find out if you know your ancestor from a thousand years ago had land which they rightly owned and then was confiscated from them. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is whether you as the descendant of that ancestor would have wound up with it. Now, it seems to be that the longer the passage of time is, the less likely it is that, that thing would have wound up in your hands because of the nature of the world. So there's all these things that can happen. So one of your ancestors might have been a drunkard and a gambler and the property would have disappeared, not because of um, the illegitimate taking of the land, but because of people's you know, free choices along the way. Right. I mean, I understand the desire not to engage in a kind of counterfactual analysis, what would have happened were it not for this, etc., a what-if you know, analysis. But again, I go back to, in the Safkin case, would we be largely engaging in that same kind of counterfactual um, you know, analysis of, of of things when very much so the people are still alive. Um, we we might not have to to, to query. You know, we, would you might have been dispossessed in another way when there's a very clear path, a causal link between the dispossession and that particular leg- piece of legislation or the events that took place 50, 60 years ago, and that can still be proved. I'm just trying to get a sense as we discuss this. Are we are we saying that actually? You know, there are some with, with rightful, with rightful claim and we might want to see a legitimate land reform or land transfer process take place for those in which the analysis is not arbitrary. We're not engaging in these kind of counterfactual debates. Well, so I think, so you might think that there's always going to be something arbitrary about putting a line in the sand with regards to a date. Although it seems like through our discussion what we found is that, um, you know, 100 years is not a bad period of time because you've got a lot of people that are still alive that can prove their claims, that you haven't had enough time um, so that the claims are dissipated through other decisions that could have been made. Um, There's something else Mm -hmm. that's quite interesting, though, which is that the groups that uh, are calling for the land to be given back the most, so the EFF and Black First Land First, um, do so when they don't believe in the nature of property rights. So you and I have had this conversation under the idea that something yes. wrong has occurred because there was a legitimate owner who had a property right over this this house or this piece of land and it was taken away from them through theft. Now, if you're a communist, you don't believe in the notion of private ownership. You think that all the land should be owned by the state, as the EFF proclaim. 
So when they say give back the land, you know, there seems to be a strange equivocation going on. On the one hand, they seem to be relying on this idea of, well, the person who originally owned it had a right to it, and that right was infringed. Uh, but if you don't believe in that notion, there's something incoherent there. Yes, well, I don't really want to argue on their turf because, I mean, they could then later on, I mean, that's the nature of sometimes this ambiguous political rhetoric is they could then say, well, we mean give back the land because right now it's in the hands of the few, but the intention is to move towards an you know, a position where we're then able to fairly redistribute it. The land, I mean, the, the state is the rightful owner, but then redistribute it to, you know, on a fair basis to everyone in the population. So I think there perhaps is some wiggle room there for them to bring themselves in alignment with, you know, whatever ideological or dogmatic um, starting point they wish, to, whichever, you know, sort of idea they, they use as their point of departure. But, you know, for so as me, you point it's, out, yeah. what's interesting is that they would, they wouldn't be keen on the process that's happened in land reform. In other words, you say, I have a right, let me prove it to you, and then it gets handed back to you. What they'd want is something very different, which in other words is that the state confiscates all property, becomes a custodian of all the land, and then on the basis of, let's say, need and ability, distributes yes. land and says, well, you know, yeah, you seem like you have great farming skills, uh, or there's, because there's a racial nationalism attached to the FF as well, you're of the preferred racial group, preferred ethnic group, so you get more land, um, you know, you guys are a bunch of, uh, you know, settler colonial pigs, you get no land, um, mm. but ultimately, no one really is an owner; they're just a tenant on the state land. Yes, I mean, of, I mean, of course, I, I don't think that's a desirable position to be in. But mm. to kind of move towards, well, so then, what do we do? I mean, we've discussed the challenges of land reform, the problems, and understanding what exactly it is, um, you know, proving the origins or whether even proof is necessary. But you know, moving forward, I think you know, I just want to take a hard stance on this and say that I think it's perhaps a policy that to a large extent be scrapped because I don't believe in the um I mean we've 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 talked a bit on the difficulty in proving um, you know, a rightful claim, and that even if you could, some might go back, you know, so far back that we're really discussing the counterfactual. I think I'd more be you know interested in a land transfer process that happens, you know, much more close. As how, how do how do I phrase this? Um, I suppose going back to what we said that you know, 1913 is perhaps far too you know too far back, and that I'd appreciate maybe a land transfer process that happens, you know, looking at claims post the 1950s, where the recipients are clearly identifiable, where there's clear you know provenance that can be proved, and people can um, you know present those those title deeds or the very least with the same generation of family that was responsible for the disposition of the land still owns the land it does become ex, you know exponentially more more difficult once um, another owner has now brought the bought the land from those who had originally dispossessed um, if that makes any sense and because of those difficulties I think by the time you've you've filtered out all of those scenarios the number of people who might still be eligible to get the land back are so minute that in terms of policy priorities I don't see it as top of the agenda. And again, because we say that most people really pursue land as a means towards um, gaining wealth or capital and really as a matter of housing. And I've got quite some ideas around there in terms of um, the state's responsibility in terms of social housing, which I think it needs to um, address in a progressive manner. But I think that's where the challenge lies, building an, an economy in which people can be, you know, productive um 
you know, constituents and contributors to that economy and build up their wealth and capital on the wealth side. And then in terms of the housing side, to make sure the state in some progressive fashion is able to provide shelter to those who cannot provide it for themselves. But I think land as a historical or a sentimental attachment is perhaps a wrong that we're going to accept can never quite be, um, you know, accounted for. All right. So a couple of things, I think, um, to my mind, we could look at it instead of a policy that needs to be scrapped as a policy that's been largely successful because it's almost reached completion and that 97% of the claims that have been put forward have been resolved. Um, yes, well, that's what I mean, is that as a as a policy issue now, it, it, I, I think it's quite minute with the, the level of redress that still needs to happen. Yes. So the other one is about what do you do with those people who – Let's say we're talking in a rights discourse, have a right to a piece of property. They've had an ongoing dispute for the last 20 years over it. Um, should they rather be compensated in some other manner, as you say? So instead of the state allocating money towards them, the money could be allocated towards other people who have their property confiscated um, who could do with access to housing. So I'll tell you an interesting story. Mm. So um, if you look at what happened with um, Holocaust survivors okay, that went to Israel, so the Israeli government receives um, payouts um, from Germany okay, for, for those survivors. And some of that money goes directly to the survivors, but a lot of that money is used towards building up the state and providing security for all Israeli citizens to ensure that a Holocaust never happens again. And there's this idea that those individual rights matter, but that they're limited uh, and that you can yield the enormous amount of good from that money in other areas. Um, so it was felt that the best way to assist um, all Israelis and all Jews was to spend that money um, for the benefit of everyone, not just for this particular class. So there's right. this tension between resolving a sort of um, a rights dispute and individuals who've suffered a wrong that, that is deserving of redress and the good that you can have from using that money in other areas. And I think this is always going to be a tension between um, those that care about rights and those that care about utility. Um, there's going to be some sort of moral clash here. Um, but at least it's something that can be up for debate. Right. I mean, I, I, I think that's true. But for, for me, the key tension still lies in really understanding what people mean by land reform. Because I think when you get down to that question, it is broken down into um, the three areas that I was suggesting. And perhaps they each have their own solution. So perhaps there's not one blanket solution for land reform. But there's a solution for those who view land reform as a means to access housing. There's a solution for those who view land reform as a means to wealth and whether or not well, that's that's possible or not, and whether there's other ways perhaps that we can pursue um, to achieve that goal, and then to address those who see to see land as a as a restitution process for historical wrongs and who might have some kind of sentimental attachment to the land. But it's this third area that I think we then run into the the obstacles that we've been discussing around being able to, to you know to prove rightful claim to that land and also the kind of counterfactual um, obstacles that we run into in terms of analysing you know what would have happened were it not for that particular situation, especially if you're going as far back as 1913. Well, I, I think you were suggesting you don't think that is too far back that 100 years might be a sufficiently prescribed period to. Yeah, I, I can live with that date. Uh, right. So I'm not making the more radical suggestion that we ought to, you know, go further in, in time. I mean, the suggestion on the other hand is that oh, that has been going, made. So yeah, is that we should okay. we should uh, go further. We should go hundreds of years back. Uh, so mm. I can live with 19, 1913. I think that's a fair uh, fair date frame. Some people are still alive. It's within living memory. Uh, you know, there's a 1913 Land Act as a piece of legislation that changed things. Uh, 
But I think you've encapsulated the issues incredibly well. Um, and that really there's an ambiguity when we talk about land reform and you've sliced that up very well and pointed out all the different issues that will be dealt with in that third category of, of redress. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks from me, Cecilia Koch from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, for joining us for this episode of Freedom Versus. We hope you found it thought-provoking. And thanks to Mtoba Chapi for the editing, visuals and graphics, and Greg Cohen for the audio. Please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel, Freedom Versus. That's two words, and versus is spelled V-E-R-S-U-S. There, you can watch the discussions between Gwen and Mark. Our YouTube channel also features additional content. Enjoy! This is CliffCentral.com.